talking about bringing faith to life. I mentioned that last week, talked about our four core values. And what I want to do is I want to take three weeks to talk about each of these four core values in the upcoming week. Uh, I want to share where they are in scripture. I want to illustrate those things uh, and and talk about how we're going to implement some of those things uh, here at the Mount. And so we start this week with this first core value of worshiping God personally. What does that mean? What does that look like? Our mini-series, as you just called, is called Extreme Makeover Worship Edition because I want us to begin to rethink and then to rebuild into our lives uh, things that will help us understand this biblical concept of worship that it's for us personally. It's not just sitting in this room for an hour or hour and 15 minutes every week. It's what we do outside of this room in our personal journey and walk with Christ, which will make a significant impact in who we are and in our church as well. You may remember a few weeks ago, I talked about this idea of worship and I described that in worship, we have an audience of one, the audience being God. God is the audience for worship. It's not for you or for me. God is our audience. And I even gave you the picture, this idea of you being on the stage and God being the audience, looking at our hearts and our spirits as we seek after and engage him in worship. Uh, And so if you'll allow me the opportunity to just kind of for a moment use a sports analogy to think about worship on Sundays, our corporate worship gathering from the sports world is what I would call game time. Okay, this is where, you know, you you get your church duds on, you bring your Bibles and you come in and we're like, all right, this is the time where with all my heart and soul as we gather together corporately through music and word that, that you are going to engage and we're all going to go hard after God and seek him with all of our hearts. Well, then the question becomes, well, how do we best do that? How do we most effectively seek after and engage with God uh, in our spirits individually in this corporate setting? And just like any game, how does a team give its best effort on on the floor or on the field during competition? It's based on their practice that week. What they do outside of the game time makes the most impact on what happens when they step foot on that floor or on that field. It's the practice that makes all the difference in the world. So for us in this idea of worship as we gather together, what you do Monday through Saturday is what will make the biggest difference in your corporate worship experience, but also in your personal relationship and walk with Jesus Christ. The best thing that you can do to have a full and meaningful, power-packed, mountain-moving worship experience is spend regular and consistent time in personal communion and fellowship with God. That's the best thing you can do to enhance your corporate worship experience. That way, as you gather here each week, you don't have to be reintroduced to the voice of God because you've been walking with him and talking with him and hearing from him all week long. So as we gather together in corporate worship, he just continues this conversation. I cannot tell you the number of times that people have caught me and said things along these lines. Do you have a listening device hidden at my house? I had a husband one time catch me and say, Did my wife call you this week and talk to you about me? Because, man, that sure sounded a whole lot like me that you were talking about up there. And you were talking right to me in the sermon this morning. Not too long ago out here in our parking lot, somebody called me and said, Man, did I miss the fact that you rode to church with us this morning? Because we were talking about that in the car on the way here this morning. 
You know, the obvious answer is no. I, I don't have a recording device or a listening device in your home. I wouldn't want a listening device in your home. Just like you wouldn't want to have one in my house either. You know, that, that's not the case. What that is is the Holy Spirit of God moving and working in people's lives to bring his word to bear in our individual situations. There is no one who is more stunned or amazed at how God takes what I do months and weeks and days ahead of time uh, to come in and share, uh, you know, 30, 35 minutes on a Sunday morning and, ma- and matches that with what's going on in your life weeks, months, days, or sometimes just hours before we gather together in worship. It blows me away how God brings those things together at just the perfect time in our lives, in our spiritual journey. But that's him. That's God doing that work. And and he uh, is the one who gets all the glory for that. But this corporate worship experience is most enhanced when you are walking with Christ day in and day out to continue hearing his voice. Worshiping God personally is important. It is extremely important. And it is thoroughly biblical. It is thoroughly biblical. Look with me in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew 22, we find the various religious groups gathering together, banding together in their opposition of Jesus. Verse 15 says about one of the groups, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. So they're setting this trap to trip Jesus up uh, and to, to catch him in something. Verse 23 says, That same day the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. Now that note's put in there because the Sadducees and the Pharisees differed on this issue of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, the two groups really didn't like each other. They were usually debating and, and kind of antagonistic toward one another, but we see that they had put aside their dislikes and their differences to unite forces to try and go after this Jesus guy and to trip him up and and to discredit him in some way. Well, we come to verse 34 and it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So you kind of hear the ding, 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 round two. All right. They've already had their one chance. Didn't do any good. Sadducees gave it a shot. Now the Pharisees are back for their second go round with Jesus. It says, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And that seems like an innocent enough question. And you might say, well, could there even be a wrong answer? Is there a wrong way to say what's the greatest, what's most important from God's law and from his word? Well, remember that these groups are trying to trap or to discredit Jesus in some way. The question is designed to create a controversy so they could accuse Jesus and plant seeds of doubts in the minds of the throngs of people who are coming to listen to Jesus teach and see him work his miracles and his signs. Their hope was this. They hoped Jesus would say, this is the greatest commandment. And then they were going to say, oh yeah, well what about this? What about this? Why not this? Or why not this? And there was going to begin to be this controversy. And people would say, yeah, Jesus, why is this more important than this over here? I think this is important. And so you get this whole debate type thing going. And and ultimately, they were going to be able to say, see, this Jesus guy is a false prophet. Because he's teaching against the law of Moses. He's saying this is more important. He's putting his own spin on this stuff. You can't listen to Jesus because he's disagreeing with the laws of Moses, which were given by God himself. Don't go and listen and follow after him. 
and they had so complicated the law here. We're talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. They had so complicated that this is not just a simple question. They had discovered that in the Hebrew text of the Ten Commandments, when you find them enlisted in the book of Numbers, uh, the, the Ten Commandments are there. There are 613 letters used to make the Ten Commandments in the book of Numbers. Their, their rabbis had researched out that in the five books of the Old Testament that they're referring to, the Pentateuch, there were 613 laws matching each letter given in the Ten Commandments. And you go, wow, that, that, that's pretty big. 613 letters, 613 laws. Man, just remembering those, that, that's going to be a big deal. So for them to come to Jesus and say, which of these 613, Jesus, is the most important? Could open up a big can of worms. It would be like us going to our major media outlets and saying, you have 24 hours to tell America what is the biggest issue facing our nation today. Would those media outlets speak about what they think are the biggest issues facing America today? Yeah. At the end of 24 hours, would we have a clear answer as to what the biggest issue facing America is? No. Yeah, you guys are going, yeah, I see your face is going, are you kidding me? No way. We wouldn't be any closer at the end of 24 hours than when we started. It would just be this constant discussion uh, and turmoil. And that's what they hoped was going to happen with Jesus. They had 613 laws, but it gets even more complex. They had taken these 613 laws and said that there are 248 of them, which are affirmative laws, laws saying you need to do this. And do you know what the 248 laws represented? The human body. They believed that there were 248 separate parts to the human body. So you had one law that told your body what to do and how to serve God with your body. So you had to remember these. Then there were 365 negative laws. These are laws saying, don't do this. Now, does the number 365 ring a bell for anything? Yeah, days of the year. So there's one thing every day of the year that you need to remember and kind of focus on that you're not supposed to do this today. Add to that this next layer of, of uh, complexity in the fact that they had said there were some laws which are heavy laws. Means they are absolutely binding, no wiggle room, you have to do this or not do this. There were other laws which were light laws. They were less binding and there could be some loopholes and some ways you could work around these laws. So can you imagine this? I mean, you wake up in the morning, you have your breakfast and go, okay, it's devotion time. Okay, now which body part am I on today? You know, the, the knee bone's connected to the thigh bone, the thigh bone. and so, so which body part, and then what am I supposed to do with that? And then thinking through, now what day of the year is it so I can have the prohibition of what I'm not supposed to do today? And then as you're thinking through that, you're like, man, is this one of those heavy ones that's really binding, or is it a light one that I've got some wiggle room in because I may need to make some tough decisions today. And if I've got some wiggle room, then, then I want to be able to know that. And so you see just how complex this is. And they ask Jesus, which is the greatest in all of these? You know what this guy did? He pulled the pin on a grenade and tossed it into Jesus' lap and then stepped back and was like, let the fun begin. But you know, the situation in that context makes Jesus' answer all the more stunning. You say, well, which one's he going to pick? And before I give you the answer, I just want to say this. If Jesus says something is the greatest, it is the most important, we need to listen because it is priority number one 
It is numero uno. It gets top billing, however you want to describe it. When Jesus says something is the greatest or most important, we should perk up and we should listen. And here's what Jesus replies in verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. What a simple uncomplicated answer Jesus gives. And the simplicity shows the awesome power itself. You see, Jesus quotes parts of the, or part of, he quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is the part of scripture that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You've read that. You're probably familiar with that from Deuteronomy 6. It says, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. See, we need to remember that, that as Moses got these laws from God, that God told him then, they're supposed to be on your hearts. It's not external that you just go through the motions. It's internal that you live these things out. It's always been personal in our relationship with God. He says, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. You see, Jesus' answer was taken from the most familiar, most quoted, most copied passage of Scripture in all of Judaism. Every devout Jew in Jesus' day would quote that passage of Scripture from Deuteronomy 6 twice a day to show his or her commitment uh, to God. Many of them would take parchment, pieces of parchment, and uh, fabric, paper type thing. They would write these verses from Deuteronomy 6 on them. And they had little boxes that they would put those in and they would cover. They would tie them on their wrists because it said, you know, bind them on your hands. And they would, they would tie them around their head uh, in little uh, boxes on their foreheads as well. They're called phylacteries. In addition to that, in their homes, they had more little boxes about the same size that they would write the scriptures on, put in there, uh, which they affixed to the doorpost of their home because it said affix these to the doorposts of your homes and talk about them and do these things. And those things were called mezuzahs that they would put there. And even today, Orthodox Jews still wear those phylacteries on their heads and their arms and have those boxes in their homes because Deuteronomy 6 is still that significant in their lives today that they make it a central part of their lives. So they knew this passage. So in short, what Jesus was telling them was this, do what you say. Do what you say. They had memorized this passage. They quoted it daily. They made a big show of keeping it out in public so people could see that it meant something to them, that they loved this passage, that that it was significant in their lives. And Jesus says, don't just quote it Put it into practice. Do what you say. Love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It's amazingly simple and uncomplicated. And in Hebrew, the word love that's used in Deuteronomy 6 when it says love God is a word that means an act of the mind or the will. That basically you decide, I am going to show love. And that kind of love is described as a, a unwavering caring for something or someone. 
And so we love, we make a decision that we are going to care, we are going to love something regardless of what takes place in our lives. And so Jesus takes that Hebrew concept and he uses a Greek word, uh, it's a verb called agapao. And you may have been, or you may be familiar if you've been around church life very long and you've heard about agape love which is an unconditional love, which is how God loves us. God loves us in spite of our sin. And God loves us in spite of our rebellion and our disobedience toward him. Nothing we can do can change God's love for us. It is an agape, unconditional love uh, that God shows us. The other thing about this word is that I just said it's a verb. It's in verb form, meaning it is something that we do. So Jesus says, love, do this with these areas of your life. So this agape love is a love of action. It's a love of pursuit, of engagement, and not simply words. You understand this concept of, of loving in action, not just in words. I know you understand it. But to help you think along those lines, think of it in this way. What would it be like in some of your relationships on earth with people if you loved people the way you love God? What would that be like? I'm going to have Shelly, my wife, come up to illustrate this morning. This is my wife, Shelly. If you have not met her, say hello to everyone, Shelly. Let me tell you how I proposed to Shelly. I wanted to come up with a, a really unique way to let her know she was going to have the opportunity to spend the rest of her life with me. So I went down to our local uh, pizza man and I said, Mr. Pizza Man, I need for you to create for me two very special pizzas. Can you spell out for me in pepperonis the words, will you marry me? Well, he did it. I couldn't believe it. So I went down and I picked up those pizzas and I took them back to Shelly's apartment and I put them on the coffee table and got down on my knee because that's the proposal position, you know. Popped open those boxes and said, Shelly, there it is. What do you think? Well, I have to admit that was the most incredible day in Shelly's life. She found out she was going to have the opportunity to spend the rest of her life making me happy. But you know, to make sure Shelly totally understood what she was getting herself into, I grabbed the closest thing for the law I could find, my junior legal pad, and I used my relationship with God as a model because my relationship with God means a lot to me. So I used that as a model to write down a few proposals that Shelly was going to have to sign in blood if she was ever going to spend the rest of her life making me happy. Here are the proposals. Number one. After we're married, I will only visit you on weekends, holidays, and special occasions. Number two, I will not support you financially. Number three, I expect you to meet all of my needs and you must expect nothing of me in return. Number four, I will speak to you when I feel like it. You know, I'm thinking maybe a few minutes in the morning, a few minutes at night, and then if I need something during the day that you can do for me, I'll just call you and let you know. Number five, I will act as though I am not married and will tell people I don't even know who you are. Signed your loving husband, please. Hey, what are you doing? I'm not signing this. Come on, Shelly. This is crazy. Well, Shelly, that's just like my relationship with God. I mean, why should my relationship with you be any different? 
So you get this concept. You see the idea. Now, that is just a sketch. I didn't propose like that. I didn't clarify that last hour, and, and people came up, and it, I'm almost insulted. They wouldn't give me any better credit than more creativity than pizzas and pepperonis. But, but nonetheless, just a little sketch uh, to drive home the point. But our relationship with God, just like a relationship with human beings, the more time I spend with Shelly and the more that we talk and share our lives, the closer we grow, the closer we feel to one another. And the more time you spend with God in Bible study and in prayer uh, and with other believers and practicing the spiritual disciplines, the closer you will draw to him and be able to understand and hear and recognize his voice and, and sense and feel his incredible love for you. Agape love, a pursuing love. And Jesus' words here are the biblical counter-argument to what I dubbed compartmentalized Christianity last week. This idea that we divide our lives and there's our faith stuff over here and our work stuff and our family and we don't let those things mesh together. Jesus tells us how we're to have this active pursuing love. He says we're to love God with our heart, with our minds, and with all of our souls. And some might see that and say, well, Jesus divided into compartments or categories. But no, Jesus used those words to describe the whole of human beings. Everything with our heart, everything with our soul, everything with our mind is to love God. That encompasses everything about us should, we should give to our full and total pursuit of God. But to look at these three terms separately helped us understand it a little bit better. The heart refers to the core of one's personal being, and it's most closely associated with what we might call our passions or our desires. You know, we love and we pursue after some things uh, with all of our heart because we, we enjoy those things or we feel kind of a compulsion or, or a pull toward those. And Proverbs 4.23, recognizing how important it is what we seek after in our hearts from these passions and desires says this, above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart because it says it is the wellspring of life. So the things that we pursue, the things that we desire and go after, those things impact every other part of us. And if we pursue and we hunger and long for the things of God and, and his word and to know him, then that influences every other part of our lives. And the book of Proverbs says, guard your heart, because if we pursue things of the world and things of, of disobedience that, that put a barrier between us and God, that too will influence this wellspring of life in all that we do. So it says, guard your heart. Because it is the wellspring of life. So it's important that we long and we desire and we seek after right things. The soul refers to what we would most closely call our emotions. It's the word that Jesus used when he was in the garden of Gethsemane before his, before his arrest. And he cried out, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's that same word for that, that emotion, that, that sense of weight that Jesus was experiencing. And we're to, to love God uh, with all that we have in that area and in that capacity in our lives. Uh, the word mind corresponds to might in some translations in Deuteronomy or the word strength. And Jesus uses that to speak of our physical energy and strength that we have, that we choose to do things. I mean, you have a limited number of time 
every single day. Uh, you have a limited number of choices you can make in what you do. You can only be in one place at a time. So you make choices. You make decisions. What am I going to do today? And Jesus says you should love God with your mind so that those things you give yourself to bring the most glory and honor to God. Because let's face it, we can squander time, can we not? And we can pursue things that are unholy, ungodly, or, or unproductive uh, in our spiritual journeys. Can we not? I mean, I can. I don't know about you guys. You're a lot more spiritual than I am. But I, I can do that. And so Jesus says, love God with your mind so that those choices and decisions drive you to God. So very important. And, and next week, I'm going to spend some more time talking about this battle for the mind and winning that battle to focus our minds and our pursuit on the things of God uh, that draw us closer to him. Well, the last thing I want to do this morning briefly is I want to give you some thoughts or some ideas, some suggestions for worshiping God personally and then give you your homework for this week. You have a homework assignment this Sunday. It's awesome. I'm, I'm excited about grading your papers uh, next week. I mean, this, it's not a complex thing. You know, the, the teachers of the law had really complicated stuff. It's not complex. The question is simply this for you this morning. What can you do this week as personal worship to love God? with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. What can you do to personally worship God in those areas and in those ways? A couple of thoughts or ideas for you. One, set a goal for spending time with God this week. I want to spend some time with God this week, okay? One day, two days, three days, seven days, whatever the goal may be. Set a realistic goal. I mean, if it's not something that you're doing right now, maybe just a couple of days this week so you don't have to deal with that guilt of saying, man, I wanted to do it every day, but I only got five or seven, so now I feel bad because I didn't do that. Satan will use that guilt to beat you down. So be realistic, and obviously seven days is a great goal, but kind of work your way into it. But set that goal and know what you're shooting for, which brings me to the second point, have a plan. If you say, I want to spend time with God this week, then how are you going to do that? What does it mean to spend time with God? You're going to read your Bible? Good. How are you going to do that? You're going to start in Genesis 1. You're going to start in a gospel. Uh, you're going to get a study Bible and read a chapter and then read the notes. Uh, you're going to use a devotional guide. If so, which guide are you going to use? I, I don't know. There are lots of hows you do that. But just have a how. Know what you're going to do when you spend time with God. I love to say this about the thought of having a plan and knowing what you're going to do. He who fails to plan, plans to fail. Or my personal favorite, he who aims at nothing, hits it every time. Yeah. So, so have a plan. What does it mean? How are you going to spend time with God? I would encourage you to spend some time in prayer. And again, when you do that, what does that mean? What are you going to pray for? Who are you going to pray for? Keep a list. Know those things. But also, very important in prayer, listen to what God says. Write down things that God may speak to you about. So it's a two-way conversation, not just a one-sided thing. Maybe the Lord's laid on your heart to memorize his word and, and hide it in your heart that you might not sin against him. That's wonderful. You say, yeah, I, I need to do that. You know what my question is going to be? Which one? Which verse are you going to memorize this week? If the Lord said you need to do it and you say, yes, I want to do that, then, then what verse is it going to be? Write it down and then start working on memorizing it in the course of this week. 
Another thought on loving God is to surround yourself with things that help you focus on him. Putting scripture or putting uh, quotes and little phrases around that, that will help your thoughts and your, your mind drift back to the things of God. You may do this by putting scriptures uh, on your bathroom mirror so you wake up in the morning or by the coffee pot or on the dashboard of your car. Uh, displaying them at your workstation. And if you can't do that publicly, put them by your keyboard or put it in a drawer that you open where you can see these scripture verses or these phrases which help focus your mind in. If your ministry is in the home, then, then put them around the home in the things that you do. At different points in our life, Shelly's had them on, on cabinet doors and, and on the washer and dryer and different places. I walked in, I was like, what's going on? She's like, I'm just trying to keep my mind focused uh, on Christ through this. And so putting Christian music in the background, listening to Christian radio, those things help focus your thoughts and your mind on, on engaging and making decisions to help you draw closer to God. You can think of a thousand and one more ways to do it. That's fine. The issue is not how long your list is. The issue is that you're doing the things on your list, however long it may be. So here's the simple challenge for you this morning, the first part of your homework. There's a place on your note sheet that says this. This week I will worship God personally by loving him with all my heart, soul, and mind through. And then there are some blanks. What can you do? What will you do this week to worship God personally in these areas? Write those things down. Literally write them down, some of the things that you, uh, that God may have impressed on your heart to do this morning. And then you see there the second part of your homework just below it. I will ask blank to pray for me as I do this. And next week, I'll tell them about my experiences this week. Fill in the blank with somebody that you know and trust. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe a good friend. And then make it a point to share with them next week what the Lord says to you through this. And if somebody approaches you, pray for them this week and call them or send an email or a text message and then follow up next week and say, hey, man, what did God say to you this week? I've been praying all week and I'm excited to hear what the Lord uh, spoke to you about in the course of this week. So write that person's name in there. One of the greatest Christian authors of the 20th century was C.S. Lewis. In his book, Mere Christianity, he writes about this issue of worshiping God personally by loving him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And he says this, and I put this quote in your outline because I wanted you to have this. He said, the real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. You ever had that experience? You wake up and your day is just almost overwhelming. He says the first job each morning consists in simply shoving them all back in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other, and listen to how he describes this other, larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in and so on all day. Standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings, coming in out of the wind. You know, when you're in the wind, things are swirling and blowing, and you're just like, oh, it, it just could be very distracting and overwhelming. Stepping back, getting calm, focusing on that other voice. And then he describes in this next paragraph the experience of how we begin to do this. We can do it, we can only do it for moments at first. But from those moments, the new sort of life will be spreading through our system because now we are letting him work at the right part of us. It's the difference between paint, which is merely laid on the surface, and a dye or stain, which soaks right through. When he said be perfect, he meant it. He meant that we must go in for the full treatment. 
It is hard, but the sort of compromise we are all hankering after is harder. In fact, it is impossible. So you say, well, what's this, this thing that we're hankering after? It's that compartmentalized life. When we say, I can't give God control of this, and I can't let go of this, and God wouldn't want that part, and we try to hold on to parts of it, and C.S. Lewis says, you can't do that. It's an impossible thing. We need to let it go and live a life of surrender to Jesus Christ. And so I ask you this morning, are you willing this week to worship God personally by loving him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind? As we come to our time of invitation this morning, the first invitation is to invite you to give your life to Christ if you have never began this journey with him. You know, we can't know who he is and what he's called us to do if he doesn't live and dwell within us in the power of the Holy Spirit. So in our time of invitation, there'll be pastors available to pray with you and help you understand and know from God's word what it means to love God uh, and to have a relationship with Jesus Christ by confessing your sins and repenting of those and believing that Christ died on the cross for you. There may be other decisions or commitments that the Lord has been working with in your life, and our invitation time is a wide-open time for you to respond as the Lord speaks. So as we pray, and as we begin a time where you can respond, if the Lord's prompted your heart in some way, be obedient. Be obedient to his work and his moving in your heart and in your spirit today. Let's pray.